This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zipline through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Marconi Plays the Mamba Edition. It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2016. On today's show, I Love Dick is the new Amazon pilot by Jill Soloway, creator of Transparent. It stars Griffin Dunn and Katherine Hahn as passive-aggressive bickerers trapped in a hellish marriage, and Kevin Bacon as a charismatic intellectual who changes both of their lives. Presumably, we'll find out if it gets picked up. And then what does it mean to be, almost without controversy, the worst song of all time? GQ has given us an oral history of We Built This City by Starship. Along the way, we'll discuss the very concept itself while no doubt offering our very own contestants for the crown of scorn. And finally, Hollywood has had a bad summer. Is it fair to say, finally, that movies, as we've known them at least for 100 years, are dying or changing into something unfamiliar? We'll discuss. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens, uh, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Uh, Julia, I sort of think of this as the beginning of the year. You know? I was going to say the... Happy New Year to you. <laughs> I know. It feels like that. I feel like such a happy... Happy Q1? <laughs> no, it's Q... Well, it depends which... Way. This, the Slate fiscal calendar means this is Q3 heading into Q4. <laughs> oh, that's so festive. <laughs> the French actually Fireworks. do have an expression for this time of year. They say, bonne rentrée, good return. Because, of course, they've all had just had six weeks of holidays on the beach. And they're going them. back to school with their little French school bags. <gasps> Yeah, it does always feel like the start of the new year. I feel like that's appropriate to us as an academic show. I definitely feel like when I married into Judaism, I was like, yes, this is right. This is correct. The new year should Mm. be now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Surely this means we have some business we need to attend to before digging in. Yes, I have two pieces of business this week. First of all, we are doing a live show in Los Angeles with the lovely Karina Longworth, star podcastress extraordinaire, on Thursday, October 13th. You can get tickets for that show at slate.com slash live. Uh, it will be at the lovely Aero Theater in Santa Monica on the west side of Los Angeles for all you lazy boneses who thought it was too onerous to drive to the east side last time we were in town to come see us. Uh, there are still some tickets left, so snatch the last few up at slate.com slash live. Uh, second, this is the final week that our beloved producer, Anne Hepperman, is producing us. And so we have invited her on to be our guest for Slot Plus. Uh, she has another audio love. That love is audio fiction. She is the doyenne behind the Sarah Awards and the Serendipity Podcast, which are must-listens if you are an audio fiction buff. And if you are not an audio fiction buff yet, what are you waiting for? It's 2016. Get with it, people. Uh, so we will hear from the mastermind of these efforts and hear a few great clips of the work that Anne is championing in our plus segment. So join us there. And if you're not yet a member, join at slate.com slash culture plus to hear segments like that and to support Slate and the work that we do. All right, Steve, I think we are ready to commence. Indeed we are. Okay, digging in. I Love Dick is based on a cult novel of the same name about a relationship between an aspiring filmmaker, a married woman, and a cultural critic, the eponymous 
Dick, with her older and somewhat eunuchy husband acting as a cuckold or possibly a pander, I guess we find out as it goes, a Pomo love trio unfolds against the backdrop of Marfa, Texas, and the oat creative class, the artists, writers, the suits and blowhards that gather there. The book it's based on was metafictional and sprawling. Jill Soloway has promised uh, not to simplify it for the small screen. Uh, she's awaiting, I suppose, a green light from Amazon to continue making it. We watched the pilot. Let's listen to a clip. Yeah, and before the clip starts, we should note that the whole show is kind of cut through with these title cards that are intended to be excerpts from letters that Chris Krauss, the main character, writes to Dick, the Kevin Bacon character. Um, so you'll hear one of those at the top. Dear Dick, this is about obsession. How do we not know each other before now? This is about me missing you, even though I've never met you, Dick. Hi, I'm, I'm Chris Krauss. Well, hello, Chris Krauss. Dick, right? That's me. Love, love that you just go by Dick because usually someone would, you know, if one is born a Richard, they would. Rich, Rick, Richie, Ricky. There's so many. Just Dick. Yes. Is it possible that I saw you on a horse yesterday? Yeah, I have a ranch just outside of town. Oh. How, how big? Curious. You want to know how big? My rancher. <laughs> no more polite to ask a rancher the size of his acreage than to ask a lady her age. I'm st- st- straddling 40-ish. Straddling? <laughs> I had forgotten quite how filthy that clip was. And I also love the, like, noise-canceling headphone, like, thwom effect in the background. Like, the, the party noise drops out as she sees him and they have this charged exchange. And then it comes back there at the end. All right. Well, um, Julia, why don't I start with you? Um, let's begin by offering maybe a little bit of a caveat. Wait, did you give that the Latin pronunciation? <laughs> I, I was politely ignoring <laughs> that humiliating moment for Steve. Cawe canem, if you will. Cawe podcast host. Oh, dear. Um, get me a one-way ticket to Marfa, Texas. Jesus. Anyway. <laughs> Let's offer a brief caveat here, which is that we, years ago, watched the first uh, episode of Transparent when it was also an Amazon pilot and when its fate was also up in the air. And I think we had kind of ambivalent feelings about it. I personally, I went on to really almost venerate the show. I think it's a work of genius or near genius or whatever. You can't tell anything about a pilot. You especially can't tell anything about a pilot that's, you know, essentially a, um, a flyer on a show that may or may not go. Nonetheless, we watched it. We had feelings about it. What were yours? Well, I mean, you know, the whole TV business is in the in the uh, business of judging things. Based I'm on pilots. just trying to keep us from looking like total dipshits. A second but we liked time Transparent, row, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We just talked about it before. It was a massive cultural phenomenon, and we never went back. <laughs> we probably should at some point. It could be a, an esprit d'escalier slate plus. This show, however, I mean, as Willa Paskin pointed out in her review for Slate.com, Jill Soloway is the main creative force at Amazon, right? She has their most talked about, most buzzed about, most widely venerated show on the air in Transparent. So they're going to let her do her next thing. It behooves them to do so, whether or not it's good. And uh, here it is. And I did not find this show to be super compelling. And I'm perhaps hamstrung by not having read the book or having a hint of the what sounds like a pretty compelling and strange and distinctive and particular uh, story that it comes out of, like having a sense of how that might unfold or where it might go. But um, the like sexual woes of the upper, upper artsy middle class seemed, I don't know, like it just seemed a little hermetic. And then the choice to put it in Marfa, which is its own I mean, it's certainly picturesque and fun and kind of this like great mix of forces. It it sounds like it adds visual interest to the show, but it just makes the whole thing seem like such a little hothouse flower that it doesn't feel particularly urgent. And the book is not set in Marfa, correct? No. That was Soloway's choice for the show. Yeah. Which I I can understand. I mean, the one time I went to Marfa, it seemed like everything should be set there forever. It's a crazy place, but it's so singular and specific. It feels like the foibles of people toiling there seem random. 
Yeah, you know, I was so excited for us to talk about this show, both because of the the Soloway factor and because it stars Katherine Hahn, who I feel like has been sort of the great sidekick in comedy after comedy after comedy in the last few years and never gets a title role. And so the best thing about it to me is that you get a chance to see Katherine Hahn doing her thing. And even though this show is not funny, I don't even think it's meant to be sort of knee-slappingly funny, although it is a half-hour, vaguely comedic format. But Catherine Hahn is just interesting. She has she has that kind of edgy, slight cruelty that makes her really ideal to speak this kind of dialogue because there's something, and I think this is true, transparent as well, although unlike Steve, I haven't followed the whole thing, is that there's a uh, there's a ruthlessness to her sense of humor, to Soloway's sense of humor, and she seems to mesh well with Catherine Hahn in that way. She's, Hahn is not an actress who's trying to be loved and adorable and, and get the audience's attention and affection at every second. There's not a lot of mm-hmm. bunny-like nose scrunching by Catherine Hahn. She's totally hmm. tough and uh, fearless and unselfconscious, even as she's, like, insecure and frustrated. She's insecure Mm -hmm. and frustrated, but she's not... She doesn't seem to be cowed in her self-expression at all. And that does feel fresh. And Catherine Mm -hmm. Hahn is great. Well, and there's also the implication, which is why I would keep watching this show if it were picked up at least for a while to see where it goes. But there seems to be the implication that she... uh, Her character, Chris Krause, who's also the author of the the novel that it's based on, or sort of metafictional novel, I guess, that she's going to become more ruthless and more kind of growing into her own, you know, taking up space kind of personality as the show goes on, since the Mm. plot of the first episode seems to sort of be her reinventing herself as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I'm dying to know what happens and want to continue watching, absolutely. I think... I mean, academia maybe isn't exactly where this is set, but the husband appears to be some kind of an intellectual slash academic and speaks like one. And and frankly, so is the Kevin Bacon character. So let's call it academia. Academia is too easy to satirize, which is why academia is so hard to satirize in a way. And um, I think critical to satirizing it is making people believe that it's both self-serious to a preposterous degree, especially relevant to the actual stakes, and yet not totally silly so that you don't know why anyone is bothering to train a satirical canon on it. And that's a target. I would continue watching in part just for the drama of it. I love the sexiness of Kevin Bacon's performance so far. That's absolutely the linchpin of the show in a way, is you have to believe that there's a cultish C-U-L-T-I- S-H, sexiness to this intellectual that the husband may have desperately wanted when he was younger, but absolutely doesn't have in middle age, late middle age. However, I do think you need to believe that the pretentious things they're saying aren't totally silly, especially when you learn what the nature of the novel was, which I admit also to not having read. But apparently the novel is itself presented in a postmodern, highly self-conscious style. And it's about people who read and think about postmodern nonfiction and fiction and theory. You have to believe that they're onto something, or you just think they're a bunch of ninnies. And that was my biggest intrigue, but also anxiety about the show, that, that you know, the husband is a blowhard and a bit of an ass, um, and the Kevin Bacon figure is super compelling and sexy and kind of withholding in this powerful way. But I hope to come to believe that they're not just pretentious twits, you know, fucking each other in a boring round robin. (laughs) I mean, I do think that there's a couple directions it could go. I mean, certainly the description of the husband's research where he wants to, like, crack open the Holocaust to find a new angle on it (laughs) is definitely seems to be presented with ridicule in mind. Um, but the notion – I hadn't quite thought about the notion that, that the game that the pilot plays and the pilot is sort of cut through with these title cards written in the voice of letters mm-hmm. from Catherine Hans Chris yes. to Kevin Bacon's dick uh, all about how mm-hmm. attractive she finds him and sure. how she likes him and how her life is going. But in the pilot, she does write this notional letter to Dick and and you don't quite know whether she sent it or not and she describes a set of things that – didn't happen. So there's sort of this mix of the, the fantasy flashback, which we see on screen and what we saw to have really happened. And I wonder if that's where the show is going in, in this kind of blend between the reality in the letters and the reality out of the letters and whether the twain ever meet. That that would be more interesting to me than just who fucked who and Marfa. What did you guys think of those those title cards that Julia was talking about? There's these just these moments where the story goes to a red screen with white capital letter words on it, and they're either repeating a line of dialogue that was just said or making some sort of 
categorical statement or sometimes naming the next section of the show. I found them distracting. I think there may be an attempt to replicate the metafictional shape of the novel in some way, but they reminded me of Jenny Holzer, you know, that artist who has video, like, I don't know, platitudes that flash up that always seem sort of so proud of themselves because their words flashing up on a screen, but that what they're usually saying is completely <laughs> uninteresting. I never thought about the smug pride of the Jenny Holzer oh, Jenny Holzer is so smug. <laughs> Look at me. I put words in a museum. Um, I thought the title cards were cutesy. I didn't love it. I mean, I think this is maybe an instance where the pilot doesn't quite bear out the whole notion of the show, right? Like if the if the whole show is going to turn out to be about text and reality and letters and blah, 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 maybe that will come to feel like an urgent, necessary part of whatever puzzle it's going to untangle. But if they're just like a stylish way to say that Kevin Bacon is hot and Catherine Hahn wants to fuck him, it seems like less or less less worthwhile to have been so cute. Well, the novel, if I'm not mistaken, dates from 1997, I believe, which is right around the tail end of the heyday of theory in humanities departments. And um, there's still something like a viable cult of personality around, uh, among some of the sort of superstar theory heads. And that moment is past, right? So there's very little residual glamour to it. The intertitles will work and the show will work if we can believe there's some substance to the set of postmodern cliches that really animated that moment in academia, and those cliches had to do with writing and texts and the relationship of people to the accumulated cultural symbols of the past, and postmodernism had to do with being entrapped within them, but maybe finding a way out by being playful with them. Uh, If all of that seems like the masturbatory in-talk of a bunch of hyper-intellectuals, then I think the show goes nowhere. If people can be led to find it sexy and vital and somewhat true, the way you feel when you watch, for example, Dangerous Liaisons, which is all about how people invoke one another and bring themselves into being through writing, especially erotically. I mean, that work has lasted a couple of centuries. So I don't I don't know that it has to be inert or anachronistic. It could be quite interesting. But that's where I am on the intertitles and the show. Well, we will see if they give Jill another shot. <laughs> All right. The show is I Love Dick. It's available streaming on Amazon after which I think you're invited to vote on whether it should be allowed to continue to live. My vote would be yes. What about you guys? Yeah, sure. Let a thousand uh, postmodern Marfa comedies bloom. Yeah, absolutely. I'll stick around for another few episodes to see what happens. For Catherine Hahn. Yeah. If nothing else. All right, well, let us know at facebook.com slash culturefest what you thought of the show. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, moving on. Jefferson Airplane was one of the truly defining rock and roll bands of the 60s. Their lead singer, Grace Slick, was a famous 60s bad girl. They had huge hits with White Rabbit and Somebody to Love. And then came, not exactly nothing, but they changed their name to uh, Jefferson Starship. They soldiered through the 70s. Then in the 80s, they decided they wanted a nest egg. There's nothing wrong with it. But they cut a POS single called We Built This City. Went into heavy rotation on MTV. It went to number one. And GQ has now put out a very amusing oral history of this song. The hook being that it's possibly the worst, or it's, there's absolutely nothing hypothetical about it. They, they assert it's the worst song of all time. This is fun in itself, but it raises some very gap-fest questions. What makes something historically bad? We're joined by Chris Melampley, Slate contributor. Hey, Chris. Hey, how are you, Steve? Uh, very good. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm trying not to be too insulted that this is why you guys called me in, but uh, otherwise, <laughs> well, otherwise I'm great. Worst song of all time, get Melanfi in here. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. And it's a number one hit, too, so, you know, it's, it's a twofer for me. Perfect. It is a twofer. I was going to say, usually we have you in here to ask why something is popular or a total success. Well, Chris, you give me a great segue right there. Um, uh, we can begin by discussing this song was a huge hit. And not only was it a huge hit, it gave them subsequently 
three other, I believe, number one hits in the 80s from a kind of puppet show plus spinal tap kind of joke into a, <laughs> into a big touring act. Uh, talk a little bit about this, about the commercial fate of the song. So, yeah, uh, We Built the City was a number one hit in the fall of 1985 um, at the height of MTV's first era. Uh, and uh, MTV is is you know, part of the this backstory of this song because you know if you haven't had the pleasure of, of watching the music video, you you really owe it to yourself to to dial into YouTube. We'll we'll link to it from the show page, and and witness um, all of the many state of the art uh, 1985 effects of the video. But you know the song is the song, and as you pointed out in your your intro, the band Starship has such a tangled history. I, you actually even elided their their 70s history as Jefferson Starship. That basically you know the band was founded by Paul Kantner who actually died just in the last year in the 60s. It was, you know, avatars of, of the hippie 60s with those hits you mentioned, White Rabbit and Somebody to Love. Then in the 70s, they actually became something of an arena rock act as Jefferson Starship. Paul Kantner was still in the band. Grace Slick was still in the band. Marty Balin, some of some of the original members. But this is the period in the seventies where one by one they're starting to replace members. And by the end of the seventies, uh, as the the second wave of hits like Miracles were drying up, uh, they started bringing in other session people, like a new lead singer named Mickey Thomas. And so by the eighties, they have morphed into kind of many steps removed from what they were first as a hippie band, then as a you know arena rock act. And as noted in this GQ oral history of We Built This City. Um, Grace Slick was pretty well, first of all Grace Slick was the last remaining uh, member of the 60s incarnation of Jefferson Airplane at this point um, briefly Paul Kantner who founded the group uh, left the group angrily in 1984 and took the Jefferson part of the name with him um, so the group could no longer call themselves either Jefferson Airplane or Jefferson Starship so they just went with Starship and so starting in 1985 that's when they became Starship and this We Built This City was the group's first single under that moniker and it was an enormous number one hit um and uh I suppose we can talk about why this thing was such a fungus and why it did so well. Um, so maybe now would be a good time to uh, listen to this. Um, for those of you who hate this song as much as the many people described in this article do, I apologize in advance. But uh, this was uh, the number one song in, uh, I believe it was November of 1985, uh, Starships We Built This City. We built this city. comes in right at the end of the first chorus. And starts lip syncing. And starts lip syncing in the music video. Yeah, you have to see that to You guys, can I just question the premise of this whole segment? Sure. That song is fucking great. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) We were all sitting here with massive grins on our face. That is a really catchy chorus. It is. The lyrics are preposterous. I mean, they are absurdly bad. Too many runaways eating up the night, Julia. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. There's also the like sink in this fight. Like... Like the words almost seem mad libbed <laughs> into into incoherence. Do, do you want to talk about why, why the lyrics sound that way? Anyway, sorry, well, finish well, let's, your thought. Let's get to it. But but they're like delivered with with gusto. It's like a it's like the sine qua non of like an absurd eighties song. There's also mm-hmm. the underlying irony that they're claiming to have built a city on rock and roll when in fact they are exhibiting robustly the sound and kind of production that maybe like pitched a few early spoonfuls of dirt onto the grave of rock and roll of the kind that the band's legacy might have been connected to. But like the G- the whole GQ oral history takes as its premise that this is the worst song ever because Blender said so in 2004. <laughs> and, and like 
I I was expecting like a bit of a critical intro up top, sort of like the well, Blender named it in 2004, but here's why this is the worst song ever, and thus we should have an oral history about it. And then they just didn't. They just left it, and we're like, yeah, Blender, defunct music magazine, Blender <laughs> once claimed on a lark that this was the worst song I, ever. And I wait, j- just to finish the thought, and then I promise I'll let someone else talk. But it's clearly a ludicrous song, but it's very enjoyably ludicrous. Oh, it it is so catchy, and like of the, the actual worst song ever would be like some dumb song that you never heard. No, 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 Julia, you completely <laughs> misunderstand the framework here. For something to be the worst song of all time, it has to be a good song. As a premise, it has to be <laughs> catchy, so catchy that it freaking earworms you to the grave. Um, it has to have been a big hit. It has to have been importantly bad, right? It has to capture a moment or an attitude revoltingly, which takes a certain kind of zeitgeist genius as much as capturing a moment admirably does. All of these things make something meaningful enough to be called worst. There are plenty of, in some kind of small B bad sense, worse songs than this one. But this is, Chris, back me up here. There is something uniquely bad about this song. This is a terrible song. I mean, there, there's, there's no question this is a terrible song. But can you guys agree? I do agree strongly with one thing Julia said, which is that just setting that out as this unquestioned critical shibboleth and going from there seems completely uninteresting as a, like a method yeah. of talking about bad songs. Well, and I will agree with Julia to the extent that, uh, you know, I tend to think that the worst songs are, are sort of, you know, flaccid, you know, backgroundy ballads or, you know, things that just kind of lie there. This record does not lie there. I mean, this record wants to be your friend from the moment it opens up <laughs> it is it is aggressive it is like you know it, it is it's, the hum- ed- it's it, just say it it's humping your leg it, it's, <laughs> thank you yes that's actually brilliantly put it is humping a, your leg it's a leg I, humper it's a total leg humper it, it is it is totally humping your leg it, it you know in fact when we started the song dana asked me oh wow does it actually start with the chorus like that yes it actually starts with the chorus <laughs> like not, that. and not even like it's not even a chorus with a build like the beginning of the chorus is the hook <laughs> right like, it just starts with the hook like immediately one of the most revealing lines in this GQ oral history is um, Grace Slick. Uh, it's actually not out of the mouth of Grace Slick. It's it's from one of the producers who said he'd been instructed by Grace Slick, I want hits. Uh, you know, like she saw this as like her final lap with this band that she'd been, you know, hanging out with and flogging since the 60s. And she's like, look, whatever you have to do, I just want hits. And this is, you know, kind of like the producer saying, OK, you said you wanted a hit. Here you go. I mean, it's 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 sort of aggressively catchy. And it's it's like the Ned Flanders of records. It wants to be friends with you the instant it meets you. And and th- this is this is the record that you know they they served up to her. You also actually Julia mentioned the the strange lyric. One of the most interesting things about this is is who wrote it. It started uh, as a record by Bernie Taupin. Bernie Taupin of Elton John fame. So Bernie Taupin is a really interesting songwriter because he's mostly a lyricist. If you've ever listened to a, a vintage Elton John song like Your Song and thought to yourself why is it that these words sound like they were written on a page before somebody actually tried to put music to them. That's because that's actually the way Bernie Taupin writes. He writes lyrics, hands them to Elton John, and then Elton John puts music around them. It, by the 80s, you know, Elton John was uh, diversifying and doing some of his own songwriting, and Bernie Taupin was also trying to diversify. And so he teamed up with like a different set of producers, including this guy Martin Page, who'd been in a minor synth pop group called Q feel and they they put together the record and what's so hilarious is that the um, it, it's kind of like two records grafted together the the Bernie Taupin Martin Page version was this dystopian post Blade Runner thing about uh, Blade Runner crossed with Footloose. It's like a town where people can't dance anymore. And like, you know, the radio stations have all been taken over by corporations. Probably the most interesting verse is the one Grace Slick sings solo where she talks about people always playing corporation games, whatever that means. And then it was handed to Starship's producers, including a guy named Peter Wolf, not to be confused with the Peter Wolf of the Jay Giles band, but Peter Wolf, uh, an Austrian producer, pop schlockmeister, who said this thing needs a chorus. And they came up with the chorus that has the Marconi plays the mamba part. Interesting aside, a mamba is a snake. It is not a form of music. (laughs) If they meant mambo, they should have said mambo. But instead, they clearly say mamba. And they even talk about that in the GQ profile. If Marconi had played the mamba, we never would have had radio in the first place. (laughs) Exactly. They're killing Marconi. Marconi, the inventor of radio. Anyway, so yeah, it's this podcast wouldn't exist. Exactly. So this it's this Frankenstein's monster of a thing that Bernie Taupin wanted to be this dystopian thing grafted onto this big power chorus that, you know, like I said, you know, is is humping your leg to use Steve's phrase. Mm. 
I mean, it, also, let's bring ourselves back to 1985. The question on a lot of people's minds was, how would the generation that invented the concept of selling out, how would they deal with adulthood, right? It was one of the dominating questions of the 80s. And to have, I mean, Grace Slick, Chris, was as associated with the counterculture as, as really any rock and roll musician could be. Definitely. And ba- basically to have her come out and say, I am going for the money without shame r- r- was as defining of this song as anything. I would agree. I mean, what's also interesting about Grace Slick, who gives very few interviews and has been largely off the grid for the last 20 years, is, you know, they're using quotes from other interviews because they couldn't get her to talk for this profile, unsurprisingly. Grace Slick's own opinion about this song is something of a matter of debate because she was saying nice things about it in 1985. And and one of the things that's fascinating, frankly, about the whole oral history is that even some of the members of the group who are more, you know, um, positive about the song, like Mickey Thomas, the lead singer, or Craig Chiquico, the, the guitarist, is they almost feel like 20 years, 30 years of being told this is a terrible song has trained them to say, all right, you know, I guess if people think it's a terrible song, it's a terrible song. But I think it gets at the debate that you and Julia are having right now. Is this an awesomely bad song? Is it just an awesome song? Is it just terrible and irredeemable? Like, I I don't think the members of the band can even make up their minds about whether they should be embarrassed about this song. Not to mm-hmm. not to be off topic here, but just as the like magazine editor in the group, I did not think that was a very good oral history. Like, mm-hmm. I did not think it was very well edited or that the I mean, the conceit of it is funny. It is like the only good autoplay music joke ever that, you know, it's like anathema on the web to autoplay music. But when you pull up this story and start to read it, the song just plays out of your browser. Like props to GQ for that. That's just like a great gag. Loved it. And the notion, you know, I think the oral history thing is overplayed, but to go deep on this particular song. I like I like that. But the the setup of why it's so bad or what a bad song is, just like skipping that step. I was annoyed at them for missing that little bit of intellectual work, A, because it seemed lazy, and B, because I think it would have provided a better grounding for the set of conversation that follows. And then I just think the way that the band is talking to and around each other, it seems almost like, again, it was played more for laughs than for um, inquiry into the song or the question of what a bad song is. Like the, the piece just, the piece seems like a big scoff and not actually curious about bad music to me and and I I like was not into the oral history because I felt like fundamentally it was like poking its buddy in the rib and laugh and pointing and mm-hmm. laughing rather than trying to 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 figure something out. Mm-hmm. Chris, do you do you dignify the concept? Do you think it's meaningful and if so, can you give us a couple of examples of what might uh, be the worst song of all time? About worst songs? Well, okay. Yeah. Um I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to, you know, solve this riddle of is is a bad song a big fat hit that is actually very catchy or is a bad song just a, a song that lays there and, you know, is not at all interesting? I, I'm th- This is an eternal debate. In fact, um, I go every spring to Seattle uh, to the uh, pop conference at the Experience Music Project, which is like a gathering of pop critics. And uh, in 2015, so not this year, but last year, um, they actually convened a panel about this very topic, Worst Songs. And there was something of a, a, a debate about this. I'm not sure we solved anything there either. But they they polled everybody about terrible songs and, and you know, asked them, you know, what would you nominate as one of the worst songs of all time? And folks were kind of all over the map. Uh, some of the ones that, that people landed on uh, included uh, What's Up by Four Non Blondes, which I definitely stump hard for. I can't stand that song. Um, Who Let the Dogs Out is a perennial favorite. Um, we Are the World is is one that is people have up, debated. Is What's Up the one that that's the what's going on? Yes, that's the okay. one from the mid-90s. Got uh, it. And by the way, melodically, it's identical to Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. I'm surprised Bobby McFerrin never sued them, but that's, a, that's an aside. Um, and um, I actually uh, proposed a song that was a very minor hit. It like reached number 61, I think, on the Hot 100 um, by a contemporary Christian group called Power Source. And the song was from the 80s and it was called Dear Mr. Jesus. It's uh, a a song decrying child abuse sung by a little girl uh, that features a a children's choir at the chorus. And this thing actually got played on Z100 in New York in the mid 80s. I remember it vividly. And it's just teeth rattlingly awful um usually when i get into debates over worst song you know discussions i i say okay but is it worse than dear mr jesus dear mr jesus to me is like the barometer of like an abysmal song the fact that it was a minor hit barely qualifies it for this discussion but but you have you had a point steve when you talked earlier about the ones that really drive you crazy are the number one hits the big ones that are 
omnipresent and, and surrounding you at all times, like We Are the World or We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, a song that I know Julia has a long history with herself um, <laughs> based on a previous segment we did. Um, or even Hotel California by the Eagles. That was another one oh, proposed yeah. in our, in our that segment. That was going to be my... In fact, I asked our producer to pull a, a clip of Hotel California because that's one of my all-time worst songs. All right, I want to hear your case for that, though, Dana. Why Why is that the worst song of Well, I mean, I guess this is occurring to me as, as Chris was talking just now is that it seems like a lot of these songs that we're talking about, what they have in common is bombast and self-seriousness, right? That's right. one thing that easily makes a pop song unlikable, even if it's catchy, right? I mean, obviously, if you're going to be a purist about it, the, the worst song is a song you can't even remember after you hear it because it has no hook, but that doesn't make for an interesting conversation. We want, as Steve said, to talk about like big songs that everyone knows, that everyone gets stuck in their head, but that have something loathsome about them. I think to me, Hotel California just passed its, its, it just, its, its, its date, is, you know, its sell-by date is so long gone. It's been so overplayed for so many decades. There was probably a period where I could stand to hear it, but now that's a, a run for the radio to turn it off song. Mm-hmm. And in general, the ones yeah. for me that fall into that category are things like Hotel California that are kind of long, wordy ballads that are very self-serious and pompous mm-hmm. and that, you know, unfurl some kind of story, especially if it has any sort of occult or mystical. It's just so boring, that song, when it's starts, you just look down the long horizon until it's going to be over. Yeah, yeah. Stairway to Heaven certainly is there. It's funny. um, Hotel California came on the radio not three days ago when I was driving my family somewhere. And uh, my wife and I decided to see if we could remember all the lyrics. And (laughs) you realize this thing is written with the idea that one day it'll be in the Norton anthology of poetry, right? Like the person really thinks that they're, and that that just opens a new horizon, special horizon of badness. <laughs> Such a nice but... surprise, bring your alibis. <laughs> I have this very clear memory of singing Hotel California in France in some kind of like <laughs> bar after hours. <laughs> I was, this probably actually was in the 80s at some point. Anyway, somebody bring a guitar and that was one of the few songs they knew and me thinking like, I hate this song, but I know every word. And because I was the American in the bar, I wound up kind of giving the lyrics to everyone. And just the, the, and you're probably shaking your head the whole time like you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. I still remember speaking that line, getting to that, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Her mind, her mind is Tiffany twisted. Um, I have to say that I think the crown of scorn is worn unequivocally by Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton. <laughs> oh, that's a pretty good one. It manages to be mawkish, patronizing. Yep. Sexist. It, it, yeah. Sexist, idiotic, hooky, overplayed, self-important, <laughs> lacrimose, and thoroughly disgusting to the core all at the same time. I fucking it's true. The idea song. of a couple who Wonderful Tonight is their song, like you just hate both of those people right <laughs> off the bat. There are thousands of people who think that's their song. You know. Of course. <laughs> I can't, I hope one day to come back as a wedding singer and to do it justice. But Julia, you don't, I, your silence tells me there's a seething quality to it. You don't believe no. anything about this segment or this category. No, no, I'm tr- I'm searching within my soul because so first of all I like both of your suggestions more than we built the city like I would much if I was forced to live on an island and only hear one song for the rest of time and I had to choose between Wonderful Tonight Hotel California and we built the city I would definitely choose we built the city at least I could like bop around while I was trying to like shake the coconuts down from the coconut tree as opposed to just like maundering sadly right I'd like to change my vote and we built the city is now my least favorite song of all time Um, so actually my silence was not seething but me looking through all of the number one hits of the 90s to try and remember a song from my youth that uh, I found to be completely inert and dumb Uh, definitely All for Love Brian Adams and Rod Stewart and Sting that one's the nadir for me too that's like I never need it's worse than everything I do I do it for you that's a worse song All for Love yeah I never ever need to hear that song again another hit song that I never need to hear again Smooth by uh, Santana featuring Rob Thomas. That one frequently makes polls of worse songs. Yeah, I like that song. Oh my god, we could talk, but we clearly we could talk about this for the next thirty six hours straight, or I could at least. But uh, I think we have to wrap it here. Anyway, the GQ piece is called "An Oral History of We Built This City, the Worst Song of All Time." We were joined blissfully by Chris Melanthi. This was uh, it's always fun, Chris. This may have been the funnest. Thanks uh, so much for coming on. You're most welcome, Steve. I'm no longer insulted. <laughs> See you soon. 
Well, it's been a summer of high-profile turkeys culminating in Ben-Hur, which cost, I guess, a gazillion dollars, only took in about 10 or so million. Uh, a much bigger bellwether for all of this is our own show. We really didn't talk about blockbusters this summer, and no one among us or our audience seemed to miss it. All of this has led the New York Times to speculate for the first time since moviegoing became a staple of American life and underappreciated revenue engine ticket buyers who still trek to theaters more for the experience than for the movie itself may finally be conking out. Dana, this to me was the nugget in this piece that the Times ran, which is that essentially for the entire history of movies being shown in theaters, people just showing up at the theater and literally asking, they've surveyed this, literally asking what's good or what's playing next is a significant portion of the audience, maybe as much of a quarter. And in the age of home viewing and, frankly, lower quality movies, uh, this this is shrinking, and that that's not insignificant for Hollywood. Um, I, I know, Dana, you deal with these kind of big-think millennial questions about the death of movies all the time to the point where these articles hardly make you blink. But what do you think about this argument? Is something really changing? Was this a uniquely bad summer? Why was it bad? Is it just a blip? Uh, your turn. Yeah, well, the reason that I, I tend to roll my eyes at these movies are dead pieces, even though they may make a lot of good points about, you know, the, where the entertainment industry is going, is that, well, this taking this one, for example, this Brooks Barnes piece in The Times, there's a lot of numbers voodoo going on, almost the way politicians will take whatever numbers they want and make them mean whatever they want. So this, you know, big death of movies, hand-wringing piece contains the following statistics that many of which contradict each other. Attendance is, has declined this summer. It's expected to decline by 3.5%. And it's not qu- quite clear to me whether that's the year to date or just the summer. But there's so there's this decline that has been marked. But for the same year, theaters have generated $8.11 billion in ticket revenue, which is a 5% increase from last year, I think. It's not clear. And attendance in movies is also up about 1.2%. Those are all such small percentages for one thing that I would imagine that from year to year, there's frequently a fluctuation that small, but also two out of the three of those statistics show that movies are Mm -hmm. doing better than they were last year. So this is not me saying the movies can never die. I mean, I think there are legitimate questions to be asked about what's happening with the internet and the expansion of entertainment options. But to cast a pall over movies because there's been a bad summer at the box office seems like a, a strange, critical move that for some reason everyone loves to to fall in line with. And I don't know. All I know is that as a follower of film Twitter, I couldn't find a single serious critic or industry analyst I agree mm-hmm. with who who seem to have this this dark outlook for, for the future of movies. Mm-hmm. Julia, are you, do you agree with that? I mean, it does seem to me some argument can be made that viewing habits are changing. I would say over the course of us doing the show, the kind of water cooler effect of big Hollywood um, blockbuster releases has really declined during the same period of long form TV and kind of, you know, quality television has skyrocketed. None of this adds up to a, a secular trend. What do you think? Is a secular trend a trend without facts attached to it? What's a secular trend? <laughs> a secular trend is just one one playing out over a, of over a long sort of almost semi generational. Oh, as in it's in century secular, not ah. not, not religious secular. It's it. used on Wall Street, mate. Okay, I, I, your Wall Street analyst self is Australian. Okay, <laughs> continuing on. Um, so, first of all, the way I, I'm glad you called out the way in which Brooks Barnes deploys facts in that piece, Dana, because it, because it is very slippery and very strange. I mean, this notion, even the notion that Steve cited in his intro, that the number of people who show up to the movies and are like, "I'm going to see a movie in theaters tonight," and then they get to the theater and they're like, "What movie this time?" may be declining. There, he shows two years during which there was a decline, and then they stop measuring it this year. So even that statistic is like a little slippery. So that's not super persuasive. And then the part of the piece that you cited, Dana, I think the thing about the rise is it's a it's like a 1.5 increase in overall viewership this year against a 3.5 percent decline in viewership this summer, which is just like so not conclusive. And the other piece that Barnes links out to is a piece by Brian Raftery that appeared in Wired a couple weeks ago, I think, making essentially the same argument from a less like beat reporter in the newspaper way and more of a cultural critic way. And that one is just as incoherent and crazy. It at once argues like nobody's talking about movies anymore. And then 
It says, actually, we did have a ton of conversations about movies this year, but they weren't about the movies themselves. They were around the movies, like Oscars So White and, you know, what do we think of Nate Parker's past rape charge given his upcoming movie Birth of a Nation? And, uh, you know, he cited a few more kind of meta conversations around movies, which like, okay, so we still seem to care about what's happening in the movies just because the conversations happen to be a little meta over the summer when the boring stuff gets put out, whatever. Um, And of course, we were, even just a few years ago, we were talking intensely about movies and it seemed like you really had to see movies like Gravity and Creed and Mad Max Fury Road. And it's like, that was last year. <laughs> right, Star Wars. That <laughs> was the end of last year. That Everybody was, like was talking about six months ago. <laughs> Chill the fuck out, people. So both of these pieces are full of individual data points and details where you are like, dudes, get your shit together. These arguments are full of holes. On the other hand, to Steve's secular trend point, it feels right like there's something that does feel yeah, somewhat right about some of this where it just seems like the the alpha role that movies have played in culture is shifting a bit. Like it used to be that the biggest thing you could be was a movie star. And now it's like we don't the, – the biggest celebrities that we talk about and think about right now and who are like connecting on social media and being clever about their self-presentation are like – you know, Beyonce, Rihanna, Kanye, like all these musicians and their complicated like logistics of the ways in which they or TV present creators like Amy Schumer, Lena Dunham, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, and then, sure. then there's sort of the comedian. There's the there's the musician self-presentation boom, which is like very forged through social media. Then there's the comedian creator boom where we sort of, you know, the same thing that happened with baseball teams, like where you want to know about the person behind the players thing has happened, but more in TV than in movies because – I don't know why, because the kind of writer showrunner model lends itself more to the kind of social chit chat that makes you famous right now. And then television generally, like just the energy that's going into television and turning it into something that people watch is happening. And then people watching things from home means that you could sort of can say, oh, I'll catch that movie later. I'll catch that movie on demand in a way that that augurs against going to the theater. And not to sound like a broken record, but the thing that we've constantly decried of studios really trying to pre-sell everything and sell it for an international audience and make everything a sequel or a bit of existing intellectual property just means everything's worse. So I, I there's this gut level on which it's interesting to note this fact pattern and imagine forward 10 years, a world where like being a movie star is like, I don't know, being a... <laughs> like successful toy manufacturer or something. Starbu- Starbucks. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Just being like some, being like an infomercial person. Like I don't. I don't know what level of fame. Probably neither of those. But um, where it just isn't the the alpha celebrity thing to be. I guess, but I mean, I think I have to push back a little bit on just the the factlessness. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Of your initial point, Julia? No, no, I'm lumping me in with you. You and I are both here on Team Anti-Fact. It's more like the ahistoricity of it. I mean, just I was just Mm. recently listening to one of Karina Longworth's podcasts about a year, I believe it was 1948, but it might have been 1938, when there was a meeting of all the major studio heads in Hollywood trying to figure out how are we going to get people back into the movie Mm -hmm. theaters. It must have been 1948 because it was the beginning of TV, possibly. Mm, Um, 48 wouldn't have been TV, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I kept. I don't. I listened to that episode. It was good. Was it 38? Then? Don't remember, but it was very good. <laughs> Whichever decade it was about, great app. <laughs> I mean, at least since the emergence of television, there's been this dialogue about what's going to happen to movies. Why should people go out to the theater when they can stay home? What can we give them that will bring them into the theater? I think there's a very strong case to be made, even from these numbers that we're talking about, and from general trends in the last 15 years, that gigantism of the kind that runs Hollywood now, of the kind that Mark Harris wrote about so intelligently and using numbers like in a more convincing way uh, a couple years ago when he was talking about the way, we talked about this on the show, I believe, the way that big tentpole blockbusters hold up the movie industry. And mm-hmm. it's, it's because they do really well overseas and because you have a couple giant Avengers-type movies that clean up, that there's any money left lying around on the floor to make you know some mid-budget or smaller movies. And one of these um, pundits that we were reading making this huge point that movies are descending 
almost seemed to be unconsciously, in spite of himself making the case that this the end of the era of gigantism could be a great thing for movies. It could be the way that people oh, start absolutely. start coming back into the theaters again, and that there's this almost corollary effect of smaller mid budget movies, or particularly low budget movies that way outperform what they were expected mm-hmm. to do. Right, that that's sort of allowed to flourish in the uh, in the undergrowth of this big decaying superstructure. But wouldn't that be a great thing for the movies? I mean, should we should oh, we maybe fantastic. not be celebrating that summer blockbusters are no longer be going to be oh, expected no. to hold us all up. I completely agree with you. Don't we should point out Don't Breathe is the number one movie at the box office, a small budget horror film. You know, Dana, there was a moment in the late 60s when the reckoning did happen and Hollywood because of the success of Sound of Music copycatted themselves nearly to death making huge budget musicals. No one people really were staying home and watching TV. They weren't going to the movies. Furthermore, Hollywood interestingly enough, that magnificent superstructure does have a way of ignoring it's it's very internal to itself and very self-important and it has a way of missing what what it, exactly what it shouldn't be missing and in the late 60s it had missed two things completely it had still not understood the revolution that was happening in european cinema with truffaut and the nouvelle vague and the auteur it didn't understand how that had caught fire in Europe um, throughout the 60s. Uh, and the second thing it had completely missed was the energies of the counterculture. And that's why the story, which Mark Harris has told as beautifully as anyone, the backstory of Bonnie and Clyde is so fascinating. I mean, how Hollywood resisted these changes and uh, Jack Warner buried Bonnie and Clyde. He scarcely wanted to make it. And that was a huge turning point in the in the fortunes of Hollywood. And they revived because there were suddenly, with Bonnie and Clyde, there were suddenly things that you had to go to the movie theater to see, things that you would not see on television, principally sex and violence, but though in the context, and then uh, um, thanks to Bonnie and Clyde the, and, and Easy Rider, the counterculture suddenly on movie screens unendingly, and then thanks to, obviously, The Godfather, Taxi Driver, uh, and Annie Hall, uh, the American auteur was 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 uh, f- f- at the forefront for, for the better part of a decade. But it shows you that there is something magnificently unsupple about the Hollywood superstructure in a way for as sensitive as you would think it would be to audience needs and desires. What it doesn't pick up on is is fascinating. But I think we're at that kind of a turning point, but it's going to take more than courage because let's be absolutely honest, there is I am confident in saying there isn't a single studio executive whose career has been built on courage. So it's not going to be courage. It's gonna it's gonna take a trend shift to move people away from Ben-Hur and towards uh, Don't Breathe, but it could be that we're at that moment, and that will be fascinating to watch. I don't think you need much to turn people away from Ben-Hur. I think about four people went to see that movie. Yeah, it would take courage to bend toward Ben-Hur at this point. I understand, fact, but but you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah. A totally pre-sold, sequel, like, built-in, you know, what they believe to be built-in popularity, which turns out to be no popularity at all. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing, the, the fact pattern, the factless fact pattern that feels right, despite the fact that it went unsuccessfully asserted within the two articles we're talking about today, does seem like it suggests a potential reinvention of cinema in a way that is pleasing to people who like to watch and talk about movies. What I think is likely, though, is that that reinvention might also mean that movies has a smaller place in the culture, that you could have a a vivid and urgent moviescape that also still left us with a world where when you say the word star, you don't automatically think of the Oscars and fancy ladies and people who move around on a big screen in a dark theater. Yeah, I think I think there's certainly an argument to be made for that. I mean, if you just think of what movies were when they began, you know, by what huge degree of magnitude they exceeded any other sort of entertainment sensory onslaught experience you could have, right? And now we can find all these other ways to surround ourselves. I mean, pretty soon we'll have whatever Google glasses on and be watching everything that's going on around and behind us. And that that fact of going to pay money and sit in a room and look at a two-dimensional rectangle, just it doesn't have, it doesn't pack the uh, the kind of aesthetic punch that it did in 1911. Right. Know? I mean, it's kind of been a long ride, actually. Yeah, they had a good run. Okay, well, anyway, the piece is called Hollywood's Summer of Extremes, Mega Hits, Super Flaps, and Little Else by Brooks Barnes. Uh, it's on the New York Times website. You can find it there. This is one of those ones I, I really would love to hear from our audience. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. What do you think about the experience of seeing movies? And uh, how will you feel if it goes away or changes beyond recognition? All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Uh, this week, we're going to do something slightly different. This is 
Alas, the last week that we will have Anne Hepperman as our producer. So Anne has joined us in the studio. She will endorse too. Anne, thank you for coming in. Hey, thanks. All right, Dana, let's start with you. What do you got? The first is inspired by our Worst Song in History segment. I realized as I was researching the band that was Starship that had previously been Jefferson Starship and before that Jefferson Airplane, that in their middle incarnation, the one that, as Chris mentioned, never had a number one hit, there's a song that I love and that I have a very strong memory from my childhood. It was a song from 1975. It's called Miracles. It made it to number three and stayed at number three for a few weeks. And uh, and I have this very clear memory of hearing that song on a camping trip with my family and Bastrop State Park in Texas, which sadly has since burned. I think n- nearly the entire park has gone down in wildfires. But uh, we were camping among the pines and my brother had his little transistor radio listening to Casey Kasem's Top 40. And I just have this wonderful memory of sitting on this hillside with him listening to Miracles on the transistor radio. And when I mentioned this to him many years later and said, do you remember that song Miracles by Jefferson Starship? He remembered the exact same moment of sitting in the pine needles listening to that Mm. song. Very, very dreamy, kind of spacey, sort of hippie-ish song that recalls, although it's not as great of a song, the 10cc hit, I'm Not in Love, you know, with that Mm. sort of echoey, repetitive, swirling sound. And uh, it's a song that's always stuck with me. So Miracles is my first endorsement by Jefferson Starship. And my second is inspired by the presence of Anne Hepperman here um, in our endorsement segment, because she has has a podcast that we're going to talk about further in our Slate Plus segment that, how would you describe it, Anne? It's a, it's, it's a sort of a fictional, it's, it's, a, it's a storytelling podcast yeah. in which you play a role. So it was funny yeah. for me to hear your voice in, in the voice of a character. But the character is you, and it's kind of the saga of you falling in love, but with all sorts of sonic bizarreness going on all, all around you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's called Serendipity, and it's a fiction podcast, but we blur the line between, like, host and story and the stories blending into each other and... Even though I'm married, I get to have a fake Swedish boyfriend. So it's exciting. I mean, I would describe it as layered. It's it's very audio layered in a way that is that makes you have to work to figure out exactly what's going on. It also seems to have running jokes so that I think if, you, if I had listened to it straight through as opposed to the few samples that I've listened to, that you would probably hear some of the same voices and same sounds emerging again and again. And that I mean, basically, it's it's. I would describe it as this kind of complex weave of sounds that the listener has to work to extract the story from, and that is unusual. And to me, is really interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, really, what we're trying to do is we're trying to showcase radio drama for the 21st century and like challenge that idea of what does it mean to make radio drama for the 21st century. That's my goal. And then for me as the host, I just didn't want to be like, "Hey, I'm Anne, and here's Martin, and we're going to tell you what the best radio drama for the 21st century is." So. It was kind of our storyline was created a bit out of um, wanting to have some fun. So I got a fake Swedish boyfriend out of it. You jealous, Steve? (laughs) (laughs) Deeply, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. So Serendipity on iTunes or anywhere you can find podcasts. Yep, exactly. Fantastic. Um, All right, Julia Turner. Uh, I have like more of a self-congratulation than a endorsement, but it's a collective one. So hopefully you guys will allow it. I think we had such a great summer strut this summer. I made like a Julia Turner cut of our final list and, and reduced it down to the songs I found most delectable. And I've been listening to it nonstop since we had that episode. I'm like so in love with almost all those songs. And One song that I wanted to endorse this week is one that Chris actually introduced during our segment as having just gotten to the number one spot. And we heard a very quick clip of it, but I wasn't really familiar with it yet because it hadn't been part of our big crop. And it's the song Cheap Thrills by Sia. And it is just a very great, catchy song. Julia, can we put a, the Julia Turner reduction of the summer strut on Spotify and let listeners hear uh, it? I want to hear it. I guess so, but then you'll realize which of your songs I didn't like. <laughs> 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 but I guess I'm, I'm, I'm honest with you guys. We can. Yeah, you already told me you didn't like my songs in person. So. <laughs> yeah, I did nix all of the side pony people. <laughs> mm. <laughs> all of your neo soul. But a lot of the other stuff stayed in. Um, excellent. All right. Well, very special moment indeed. Anna Hepburn, this is your farewell to us. Uh, it's been an amazing experience having you as our producer. But what um, what do you have? Well, I have, I've got uh, 10 endorsements. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try it out to you, Steve. No. Uh, I just, I have two. One, I shared with Julia maybe about a month ago. It's an Instagram feed for anybody who's into birding. Uh, it's Office Buddha is the handle. Is that what you call an Instagram? 
I think it's your handle. It's your handle? Okay. Sure. <laughs> Is that what the kids are calling it? Um, the handle... The kids but, aren't on Instagram. Okay. They're on right. Snapchat. They're on Snapchat. Breaker one right. nine. <laughs> Uh, It's Office Buddha, and um, it's actually a friend of my sister's who lives in Chicago and had a family of peregrine falcons take over his balcony. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so what he did, and they had babies. He he named them, they're Stephen, Linda, Perry, and they had Tyler, Fred, and the Commodore, who he documented their hatching, um all on the Instagram feed. And it's really incredible. They've since flown away from the nest. Um, but I'm assuming they'll probably be back in the springtime. Julia, would that I be don't correct? know. <laughs> My bird knowledge does not extend that far. <laughs> to peregrine falcon nesting behaviors? Yeah. So you can watch. I mean, it's, it's incredible. You see uh, Steve and Linda bringing mice back to the new chicks. You see them. Um, you just see the whole course of just peregrine falcon life on just this Instagram urban, feed. urban peregrine life. Yeah, they're just they're just birds. They're just a family trying to get by. No wonder the movies are dead. I mean, all I want to do now is watch birds on Instagram. Birds of prey are just the best. They're the best. They're so fascinating to watch. And I have to say, Steve, I forget if you said this on mic or off when we were recording up at your place in Ghent, but you told me that there are many bald eagles on the Hudson River. And mm-hmm. on our train ride back to New York City from Hudson, I saw like four bald eagles. Oh on the yeah, Hudson. you pointed a couple out. To <laughs> I me. was like yelling across the train car, and Dana and Anne were like, "Oh my god, we're with the irritating bird weirdo." <laughs> there was another excited couple though, and you guys were just going, "There's one, there's one, there's one." Yeah, I, the nerds, the nerds did gather. Oh, my head was snapping around to see our national bird, but I only just caught a few little wings flapping. Yeah, by. there were also lots of other herons and fun things. But anyway, thanks for the bird of prey tip, Steve. Yeah. That was a hot tip. I have just one more. I'm a big fan of Grand Central uh, Terminal, and so I like going there. I go there every week for work. Um, it's part of my commute. But in Vanderbilt Hall, which is one of the halls off to the side, there's a particularly fascinating educational slideshow <laughs> right outside the door that if nobody like just really looks at it, but it gives you the entire history of Grand Central Terminal from when it was built, um, how the history of the old Penn Station and when it came down, the fight for Grand Central, um, Jackie Kennedy Onassis's um, involvement in it. So I highly recommend that as you're just walking through Vanderbilt Hall and going through the door to the outside, take a step to the left and just check out the amazing educational slideshow. <laughs> Oh, that's At such Grand a great Central endorsement. I want Terminal. to run up there and see it right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Grand Central has so many mysteries that it's always unveiling. Like, that's one that I've never, ever well, thought I about. thought you were going to mention the brand new Scandinavian food court that's in Vanderbilt <laughs> Hall, which is supposed to be delicious. But uh, I will certainly, next time I go there, ignore the delicious, mm-hmm. like, cinnamon bread rolls and go straight for the slideshow. That's it. Sorry, Steve. I wish I had more. No, that's that's good. That's plenty. Um, all right. Well, Julia Turner, I have to ask you, do you think it's indecorous of me to endorse my own cover version of the Elvis Costello song, Allison? <laughs> Only if you're game to perform it. <laughs> well, my thought is that is that I'll I'll get up there and I'll do it with Dana if we sell out this LA show. I, mean, I don't have I, you know I don't have acres and acres of blueberries to <laughs> can offer. Can I just you point out that I wasn't consulted in any way before no. this was just thrown? Also, no, can and I by, and by the, the way, we're the doing it in the time, key of E. <laughs> and also, the last time that you promised to sing a song, I, I, didn't, I made no promises at all. <laughs> you totally welched. Mm. I think I'm willing to do this leading a sing along. How about that? That that way. You know, I'll be drowned out. But anyway, we'll sell out the L.A. show. Someone will bring a guitar and Dan and I will get up there and off mic will gamely lead a crowd of 700 people in a um, in a version of uh, Allison. Anyway, that's not my endorsement. My, my endorsement is <laughs> that's just a random threat <laughs> <laughs> exactly. just to okay. keep us in line. <laughs> so I think last week I endorsed rapturously the um, for, first Ferrante novel. Um, I then picked up I, Claudius by Robert Graves. That is such a great book. I mean, people probably have no memory of any of this, but it was the first, I think, probably the really first classic, super high-quality miniseries 
was I, Claudius. The BBC did a version of I, Claudius with Derek Jacobi in the title role that was magnificent, and it was a huge hit in the 70s over here on public TV. People don't read the novel enough that it's based on, but Graves obviously was a great British poet and uh, wrote one of the truly wonderful memoirs of all time called Goodbye to All That. But uh, I, Claudius, I think, is arguably his masterpiece. It's such it's such a magnificently weird Nabokovian take on uh, Roman history, that key moment in Roman history when Augustus has been deified and Livia, who of course offers the basis for, I mean, clearly David Chase was familiar with this because he calls the um, matriarch, the demented matriarch of the Sopranos, Livia, completely knowingly. I mean, Livia is this magnificent character in I, Claudius, uh, who's p- pulling all the strings behind the scenes. Augustus is essentially her puppet. It's And it, it's just, a, it, it's a literary tour de force of a completely different kind from Ferrante's. It's not in the faux naive style. You're not meant to believe, of course, that there's an actual person telling actual events, even though it's based on history. It's, it's a very, very self-consciously literary performance of the highest order um, and wonderfully fun and deliciously weird and violent. Uh, it's fantastic. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Anyway, and thank you so much for everything, but oh. also for coming on to endorse. Oh, yeah. Wait, I had one more endorsement, which is my favorite podcast. It's called the um, Slate Culture Gap Fest. Aww. So the hosts are amazing. Everybody should check it out. Aww. Superb. Um, all right. That's as sentimentalism I'm going to get because I'm German. So, <laughs> yeah, she already told us no hugs. No Do hugging. not approach me with extended arms. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that captures nicely Anne's wonderful affect as producer, which is that she is like incredibly full of love and vigor and has helped to make our show so much better than it would otherwise have been for the last few years. But she also knows how to get tough when the, when, the, when it's time in the best no possible hugs. way. Yeah. No hugs. When Anne says wrap it up, you wrap that segment up, baby. Mm-hmm. Then you know it's about to go off the rails. Okay, let's wrap it up. Speak, speaking of which. <laughs> Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. Julia, thanks. This was fun. So fun. And no thanks uh, have the magnitude of your contributions to the show, but thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> She's like, get out of here, guys. <laughs> I tried it. I went in for a hug and I, I got what I deserved. Rebuffed. All right. All right. Credit, Steve. Uh, just one pickup. If you can just say uh, literary tour de force. <laughs> Three, two, one. Literary tour de force. Great. Literary tour de force. Literary tour de force. Got it. I love that. A little pickup. And I think you have to leave that in. <laughs> okay, I'll leave it in. Uh, and I also, sounds like Steve's line is roboting. So maybe we'll let you do the credits on the way out for your last time. All right, here we go. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is me, Ann Hefferman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Stephen Metcalf, Julia Turner, and Dana Stevens, I'm Ann Hepperman. And I won't see you next week, but they will. You don't-